This morning's sermon test is coming from Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 to 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he has said, and the Lord did as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham his son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said Abraham to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptians, whom she had bore to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For true Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a great nation for the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Bathsheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child on one of the bushes then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a di the distance of a bosha. And she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And, she, and, and as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast up with your hands, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert of the bull. 
He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. I think it's a self-evident truth that nobody really likes to wait for anything. We don't like delays. We don't like to be postponed or held up. I think you see it in kids, kids counting the days to Christmas or counting the days to their birthday or vacation. We just don't like to wait. Even as adults, we don't like to wait. Adults, we get antsy over the new job or the new relationship, or we even get antsy when we make a phone call on our smartphone and they don't pick up, and we just can't believe that they're not answering or texting us back. So we just don't like to wait. We struggle with waiting. And, and we've seen just this example of Abraham and Sarah also having trouble waiting. But today, the suspense is over, the child has been born, and it is to be an incredible event in their life. Finally, after all these years, think about it. The promise was kept, that God kept the promise. Now, we live in a world out there that people don't keep promises. I mean, they make promises all the time. Our lives are contingent upon people assuring us that they'll do this, that, and the other thing. But generally, we find ourselves distrusting of many of the promises people make. But God, we see, does keep his promises. Now, if you remember, go back with me a long time to the beginning of the year, chapter 12, 10 chapters earlier, God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah back when they're in the land of Ur. And, and he said to them, listen, you will be a great nation. You will have descendants. You will have a land. You will be a blessing to the world. Now remember, the, the blessing isn't kind of like, oh, they're a blessing. Uh, when we hear blessing in the scriptures, particularly this early in Genesis, it's to be held in contrast with the curses that came. So when he says he's going to be a blessing to the nations, that through Abraham, the wilderness that we live in because of our sin, we're going to be returned to God. So it, it means restoration. It means salvation. He's going to be a blessing. Well, that was given 25 years ago. And they came all the way to the promised land. And guess what? There was no son. But God kept making that promise, didn't he? In chapter 13, he said, your descendants will be like the, sand, it'll be like the dust of the earth. In chapter 15, they'll be like the stars of the sky. In chapter 17, he says, you'll be exceedingly fruitful. You'll be a father of nations. Nations will rise out of you. And guess what? No son. God's promise, though, was kept. That it came forth. Here, Isaac was born. Uh, we're to see God as faithful to his promises. Uh, what I want to do in this narrative, because it's kind of a, a clunky narrative, in the first seven verses, we're going to see that God keeps his promises. He's trustworthy. In verses 8 to 21, you're going to see that God protects his promises, and that's seen in this tension with Ishmael. And then the part that wasn't read, but I'll read a few verses of, Abraham's going to be with Abimelech again in 22 to the end of the chapter, and it's going to be God providing for his promises that he will complete all that he says. And I'll explain more when we get to that. But look with me at just God keeping his, his promises. When you look at this birth narrative, it, it is kind of interesting. It's a little bit understated. Look with me at one and two. He says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. 
Now, it, it seems understated, right? I mean, she's 90 years barren. He's 100 years old. Uh, they have a child. I mean, that is quite, I mean, that's something. I mean, it's incredibly unique, right? Uh, but, but what I think is happening is Moses, the narrator, he doesn't want you wondering over that, although it is quite the move of God. He wants us wondering over God. Notice he says the Lord visited Sarah. That word for visit is used when God divinely intervenes to change the course and direction. So you see it. God visited Israel in Egypt. He visited to bring them out. You see it that the Lord visited Hannah before she conceived and had Samuel. So, so clearly the focus is shifting away from, wow, you guys are old parents, to no, look at God. And then he gives this three-peat, this like a hammer to our hearts on, on, he visited Sarah as he said, the Lord did to Sarah, as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which he had spoken. Over and over, we hear God being faithful to what he said. He does what he says. He completed what he says. So the focus here is on God is faithful to what he says. And you see the response in Abraham. I mean, Abraham quickly names the child Isaac, right, which was the name given to him by God, just as God said. He circumcises him on the eighth day, just as God commanded. You see this obedience in Abraham, right? I mean, there's this obedience, but it's not born out of fear. It's born out of what? Love, joy thankfulness for the faithfulness of God. That really is a good short line for us, you know. Why do we want to obey God? You know, is it because we have to? But you see here, an obedience that is fueled by joy is a glorious obedience. It isn't I have to. It's no, there's more joy wrapped up for me with God when I obey. You see that in Abraham. But you also see Sarah. I mean, look at Sarah. What does she do? She laughs. Look at six and seven with me. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, remember Sarah, as Josh prayed, Sarah laughed before in chapter 18, but it was kind of a laugh of mockery, right? Disbelief. She's behind the flap of the tent, and God says, you're going to have a child. And she kind of chuckles to herself like someone's lost their mind. And she thinks that she understands. And so she laughs kind of a mock. This is a different laugh. And now when I think of laugh, I'm not thinking comedic laugh. I'm thinking like absolute joy, that it just wells up out of you in laughter and excitement over what God has done. That's what I think we're dealing with here. There's this, this incredible rejoicing and laughter, but not simply over the birth of the son, because there's a lot more going on here. Think about it. Why did God name him Isaac? Isaac, by the way, means laughter. Why name him laughter? Well, because his coming will bring laughter and joy. Why? Isaac contains the promise of God given back in Genesis 3, that you'll have a son and it'll crush the head of the serpent. So, so the sin that led to our being moved into the wilderness, the curses on this world, the struggle that we live, that this son's going to undo those curses. That same promise is found in Genesis 5, 29. They thought Noah, at the birth of Noah, 
It says, God called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest, the rest of God, right? The rest that was taken away as they're moved into the wilderness. From our work and the pain of the toil of our hands, they saw in Noah that it would return us away from the curse and the cursedness of this world and the wilderness in which we live and bring us back to God. But not so with Noah. So now it's Isaac and she's laughing. What's that mean? Joy's entered our world again. God's promise has been fulfilled. The son that was finally to come, he's here now. We can laugh again. You know, in the Depression, people weren't laughing all the time. At the height of World War II, they weren't laughing all the time. You know, in seasons of cancer and struggle, we're not chuckling all the time. But when good news comes into a dark world, the wilderness that we live in, all of a sudden God has kept his promise. He's brought forth a son who will bring deliverance and salvation. We can laugh again. It's not all perfect yet, but we can laugh. Why? Because the promise is here. God has established himself. This is the first child. Abraham was given a promise. God kept it. Hope in life has now come. We can laugh again. The forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation with God, hope for all things to be made new is now contained on the shoulders of the child. That's why she's laughing. That's why we should be laughing. You know, when you look at this passage, just the first seven verses, aren't you amazed at the trustworthiness of God? His word is reliable. There's empirical data here with this baby in Sarah's arms. There's empirical data. I kept my promise, just as I said, just as I promised, just as I spoke. There's empir- we can trust, and we can trust in God because he keeps his promise, but we can also trust in God that he's got the power. He's a century-old man. She is a barren woman. And from them, God brought forth a child. It shows us that there's nothing impossible for God. We can trust his promises. You know, we need the promises of God. Folks, while we yet live in this wilderness, as we're going to see Abraham continue to be in exile, we, by the way, are in exile too, waiting for the promises like him. But we walk through dark and difficult times. It's the promises of God that are like a lifeline to us. The promises of God, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, drink, or wear. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Not one of them will I lose. These promises are meant to buoy us in times of difficulty and hardship. We're to run to them and and remind God of his promises. One of the Puritans once said, show God his promises. He loves his own handwriting. Show it to him. So particularly in some of the difficult waters we've been going through, I look in God's word and I say, this is what you say. This is what you promised to do. You must do it. You must do it. You have to be true to your own character. All men may be liars, but God's no liar. He doesn't speak and not act. He doesn't promise and not fulfill. No, God's always true to his word. We need the promises of God, not just in the difficult times we've been walking through, But even in our own mortality, I mean, all of us, our days are clicking like sand through the hourglass. I mean, all of us are mortal. Some of us may be further along the path towards meeting God. But all of us have the reality that our lives are brief. We need to know that God is true to his promises. It's interesting, Paul in Romans 4 brought this scene up with Abraham. And he says these words in chapter four, he says, 
As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. That's a quote from 17. In the presence of God in whom he believed. So Abraham believed in God. And it said, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Folks, we can't live this life in exile apart from trusting in the promises of God. And here we find that he's absolutely trustworthy. I'm calling you to faith. I'm calling you to, to commit yourselves uh, to, again, mine the scriptures for the promises. Because that's what faith is. Faith is walking in light of the promises. Not simply walking in terms of dealing with the different circumstances that we're walking through, but how do God's promises speak to us in the various circumstances that we live? Do we believe that he's for us? Do we believe that he's enough? Do we believe his word? He's proven himself faithful here. But secondly not just trusting in his faithfulness, let's, let's laugh again and rejoice over his faithfulness. I mean, the, the laughter for Sarah, can't you imagine? I mean, can't you imagine? And people laughing and rejoicing with her. Well, you know, the birth of Isaac was incredibly unique. She's barren. He's 100 years old, right? But it really does point to another birth that also caused laughing. And the birth of Jesus, Mary was not barren, but she was a virgin. And it was the spirit that overshadowed her that brought forth this birth of Christ in the line of Isaac, no doubt. And the true child of promise that in him, now we know all things will be made new. We're looking back on that. Abraham was looking forward to it. His was a proleptic salvation. Ours is looking back at it. But it's the same. We can laugh now because of what Jesus has come to do. He's making all things new. We see it in our own conversion. We see it in our own salvation. We can laugh again. We can rejoice. But not just that. We can rejoice that we're part of this people. The, the Christian, the one who has faith in Christ, is a son, is a daughter of Abraham. Remember the promise back in 17, he'd be a father of nations, right? Well, all Abraham had to look at was Isaac. He, he is the first of the nation, right? Because Isaac had Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons of the tribe of Israel. And that was the nation of Israel. And from the nation of Israel came the true Israelite, Jesus. All Israel in Jesus. And then Jesus gathers a people around him. And then he sends them out. What's he say before he ascends? He says, make disciples of all nations. So the promise is being fulfilled. We're part of that. I mean, we're of the nations that have come to have faith in Christ. I mean, we're part of this promise. The faithfulness of God is on display as we gather right here. So you see in these, these first seven verses alone that God keeps his promises. We are testimony coming from the nations, coming to Christ by faith, believing in this. Uh, but, but second, notice how the, the narrative pivots now. God moves from keeping his promises to God moves to protecting his promises. Look with me at 8 to 13. By the way, uh, the laughter for us, I, I thought of this at the end of yesterday, and that's why I'm shoehorning in right now. Uh, but, but you know in Proverbs 31 when he says, um, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the times to come, she laughs. Why does she laugh? Because we have a God who has brought forth a son who's making all things new. 
we can laugh. This doesn't mean, you know, kind of an irreverent mockery of trial. The laughter is a rejoicing in the certitude of God doing a work even in the midst of the darkness. Okay, so let's shift. Let's pivot now to God protecting his promises, 8 to 13. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a feast, a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. We got the laughing thing going again. She said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I'll make a nation of the son of the slave woman, slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So what's happening here? <clears throat> well, this is kind of the fruit of the sin, if you will, back in Genesis 16. Remember, they waited and they waited. Remember I said we're not good at waiting? They were not good at waiting either. And so they decided, instead of waiting on the promise of God to bring forth a son through his, through his power, Sarah wants to take a shortcut and she gives her maidservant, Hagar, to sleep with Abraham which produces a child, Ishmael. And now the conflict comes. Here, this is at the weaning of Isaac. In this day and time, it would probably be in two to three years of age. Ishmael would have been 15, 16 years of age. And Abraham's throwing a feast. He's throwing a feast in God's honor. God, you've brought forth the son. This is now the heir. Through him, our world will be redeemed. And so Ishmael's over there. He's laughing. And he's not laughing like Sarah was laughing just earlier. He's laughing a, a mockery laugh, the same that we saw Sarah in chapter 18, the same that we saw, by the way, in the sons of Lot. Remember, Lot warned his son-in-laws. He says, hey, judgment's coming. And what'd they do? They laughed. It was a mocking laugh. You see the same thing in chapter 26 of Genesis. Th this mockery of, yeah, that's not the promise. He sees himself. Now, listen, I'm sympathetic to Ishmael for just a moment. You know, he had known his father alone, had his attention, his affections for 12, 13 years all by himself. I'm sure as he got older each year, he kept thinking, well, maybe I am the heir. Maybe I will be the heir. Maybe they will never have a son. Maybe, it will, maybe all of this estate will be mine one day. But then the child's born. Can you imagine the animosity? If you've been raised in a home where perhaps, sadly, in your family there was a favorite and you weren't it. You know the animosity. You know the frustration. Can you imagine what was baking in his soul? An anger, a bitterness. I'm not the heir. I'm not party to it. I don't believe in this. It's, it's a mocking disbelief. And this is what moves Sarah to say, cast the slave woman out. That was Hagar, her maidservant, for years and years and years. She just got demoted. She's a slave woman. Doesn't even name the child. Get him out. Of course, this displeases Abraham because it's his son. And notice what God does, though. God weighs in. And he says, what's God? Now, hold on. Before you, th I know right now you're thinking, Sarah's a monster. I mean, she is a monster through and through, right? Harsh woman wanting to kick him out into the cold. But let's not be so quick to judge just yet. Because God weighs in and he says, do what Sarah says. Now, is he just capitulating to the strong woman in the room? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. I think you see in Sarah an actual trust that Isaac is the one. He is the one alone who will bring forth redemption for the world. And Ishmael is seen as a threat. <clears throat> Do you remember? Ishmael was spoken about earlier chapters. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. Everybody's going to be against him, and he's going to be against everybody. He's seen as a threat, and she does not want the promise of God threatened. Think about how often Abraham put the threat of the promise, or put the promise and threatened the promise by giving her to the Egyptian pharaoh, by giving her to Abimelech. Think how often the promise has been threatened all the way up to this point. Now we have the baby in our arms. We don't want to threaten the promise anymore. We want to walk in obedience. This is the one that God's chosen. We're going with it. And so cast him out. So now you're thinking, well, maybe Sarah's not harsh. Maybe God's harsh because God wants her thrown out. Well, no, God's not harsh. God promised to them that they'd have a son. And he also promised to Ishmael, to Hagar, to Hagar that, that he would also be a nation. You see God bless as they get sent out with provisions. The provisions run out. They think they're dying. And then the boy prays. Ishmael means God hears, by the way. And God heard the boy, answered the prayer, delivered them, made him an expert in the bow, and began a nation out of him as well. Uh, so you see, God was actually faithful both to Abraham and Sarah with Isaac, but also in taking care of Ishmael. So what do we draw from this, this tension, this pivot point? Well, let me give you a few things to think about. He is speaking to us about the sovereign electing mercy of God. And this is troubling for some of us. We don't want to hear about sovereignty and election and God choosing one over another, but you see it here. You see it in Isaac over Ishmael. You're going to see it in Jacob over Esau. You see God having sovereign power. And Paul, by the way, in chapter 9 of Romans, references this very scene supporting the fact that God is sovereign even over salvation. In Romans 9, we read, for this is what the promise said about this time. Next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls we're seeing Moses hold God up very high. Now, there's something called a sovereign citizen now. It's kind of a political movement that began in the 70s in this country, kind of that we are a sovereignty unto ourselves, that we're not bound by federal law, we're not bound by the laws of the state, that we are sovereign. We want to be sovereign. He's the only one that's sovereign. And God's even sovereign over the soul. God's even sovereign. But don't let the sovereignty of God in election be consternating. Let it be a comfort. Folks, if he wasn't sovereign, if he wasn't drawing all things to their perfect end, how many times would we turn away from him? How often would I not go the other way? If he doesn't hold me fast, I will surely turn from him. His sovereignty has to be there all along the way. He who began a good work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We need him to be sovereign over salvation. We need him to give life to our dead souls. The idea of freedom of the will is wonderful in theory, but only in theory. Our wills are bent towards self and self-sovereignty. We need God to sovereignly move with power. So we see that here. But we also see the way of salvation. 
Notice you have these two boys. It's really like the tale of two sons. You know, they're really similar in some ways. They both have Abraham as their father. They've both been circumcised. They've both been exposed to the covenant. And yet one is a child of promise by the miracle, by the work of God. The other child is a child of the flesh, a work of Hagar and Abraham. And what Paul does in Galatians 4 is he draws the story and he says, these are two ways of approaching God. In Galatians 4, he speaks about Sarah and Isaac, that Isaac's the child of promise, the child of the spirit. He's the child that came from the power of God. And that salvation for us is by the power of God through faith in Christ. The child of the flesh would be Sarah and Ishmael. It's a man of, it's a work of man. You can approach God by human merit, by what you do, by what you avoid doing, or you can approach God by faith, trusting simply in the work of God in Christ. One is a miraculous salvation. Another salvation is you participating. What is it for you? How do you approach God? Do you approach God? Think about it. When you approach God in prayer, when you approach, not just for your conversion, but even now in prayer, do you approach him based upon the merits that you've produced for the week? Or do you approach him in the name of Jesus? Do you approach him on the things that you've avoided doing that made you better than your neighbors? Or do you approach him because of all the blessings that are found in Christ and in your union with Christ? Do, do you think it's more important to answer the question, have I accepted Jesus or have I been born of the Spirit? Have you been born of God's Spirit? Are you simply relying on this miraculous son, Jesus, making us acceptable to God through his life and his death and his resurrection? If we don't come to God in that way, we're not children of Abraham, and we don't have the promises of his inheritance. So it's not about ethnicity. It's all about faith. Children of Abraham are by faith in Christ. Not that I've maintained some adherence to a law or moral code or moral behavior. And, and then third, you, you see that I'm still in the second point, third bullet under the second point. That's kind of what I'm doing here. I'm trying to move and bob and weave. So, so the, the third would be, do you see the common grace of God? Do you see him take care of Hagar and Ishmael? They are out of, they are, they're, out, they're going out of the covenant, right? You see that by her not being with her child, being far away. You see that by her getting a, a wife out of Egypt rather than, she's not like Ruth. Ruth said, listen, your people are my people. Your God's my God. I'm going where you're going. She didn't. I mean, she didn't, she didn't cling. She didn't, you, you see them outside the covenant. That they're, that they're people of the flesh, and yet God cares for them. I mean, God ministers to them, struggling. You know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and your life is really good, it's just going well, friend, please understand it's the common grace of God. It is God giving you gifts and breath and life, and he is giving to you these things. It says in John 5 that he, rains, he brings rain on the just and the unjust, God is gr more gracious even to those outside the covenant. I would appeal to you to consider the good things in your life are still from the hand of a good God, a kind God. And, and then let me just throw this little sidebar in here. This is one of those free applications I'll just give you. But do, do you see the dynamic in Abraham and Sarah's 
wedding or their marriage, I should say. Do you see how she told Abraham what to do? You know, in, in an evangelical view of complementarianism, we tend to, I think, slide into a traditionalism where a, a woman, uh, that man is to lead as Christ leads the church and the woman is to respond and respect as the church does Christ and affirm that completely. It's right there in Ephesians 5. Uh, but oftentimes that gets diluted to kind of a yes dear for the role of the woman. But you see here that Sarah has theological steel to her and she's speaking up about God and about his glory and calling for a walking in that. And remember, in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, she's commended for being submissive. And yet look at her here. For those Christian marriages in the room, this is an interesting and important dynamic to embrace. That male and female, he created them. There is an encouragement to us. There, there is a, an example here for us that women, you are to be of theological steel, walking by faith. If your husband is wavering, call him to faith. I mean, speak up. Speak up to the things of God. There's a place for mutual encouragement in that way. It didn't redefine, I'm not redefining marriage here. I just see you see the male and female both children of God, wanting to walk in faith. Women, oftentimes, it's your charge to, to call the husband if he's wavering. Many times, Carol has just reminded me of Scripture, encouraged me with a word about God's attribute of faithfulness. It's been like, ooh, it's fresh air coming into the room. So, so we need that, a both and. Okay, third move in this narrative is seen in God providing for us until these promises are fulfilled. And, and you see this in verses 22 to the end of this chapter with Abimelech. Let me just read 22 to, to 24. It says, At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me and with your descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. Okay, this is kind of an interesting little part of the narrative, right? So you have the birth of Isaac. You have the challenge to Isaac's being the heir. And now you have this little peace treaty going on with, with Abraham and Abimelech. What What's going on here? Well, I think it's simply this, that, that Abraham stayed in the area. Abimelech, remember from last week, and he stayed in the area and, and he, sees, he sees Abimelech, the pagan king, the Canaanite king, the Philistine king, sees God blessing Abraham. And uh, he wants to make a treaty with him. Now, I think that's fueled not just because God is blessing Abraham, but Abraham also was treacherous before. Remember, it was Abraham that deceived Abimelech and almost got him killed. So he's thinking, I don't know that I can trust this guy. And so he sees God's with him. And by the way, that should be true in our lives. The blessings of God that come to us, how ought they be displayed in our life? such that our neighbors see God has blessed us. I'm not thinking material wealth here. I'm thinking a lot of different levels. 
And so you see this here in, in Abraham's life. The blessings of God are evident to the pagan world. They want to make a treaty. He makes a treaty with them. If you continue reading the story, you're going to find <clears throat> that Abimelech's servants actually went behind and seized one of this, this well of Abraham that he dug. And so Abraham goes back to him and he says, hey, we have to make a covenant. That was the well that I dug. And he makes a, a peace covenant with him. He even gives him seven sheep in the presence of all to say, this is my well. And it was ratified. It was affirmed. They forged a covenant. But here's what happens. Abraham plants a tamarisk tree by that well. Now, what's going on? Well, this is really important because he plants the tree and then he begins to call on God and he gives him a new name. He says he's the everlasting God. What, what's Abraham telling us here? Well, he's planting a tree. You don't plant a tree in a desert unless you're confident that God's going to keep the water, that the water will keep coming and that your needs will be supplied. And you don't plant a tree in an area that you're going to leave in a week or two. You plant a tree. Planting the tree is really, it's really like Abraham walking by faith. God, you will provide for me until the promises are fully fulfilled. And, and I'm going to remain here. It's like a foot into the land. Abraham is still a sojourner. He's still an alien. He has not received the full promise that God's given to him. But he's expecting it because of Isaac. So think about the writer of Hebrews. He helps us understand this. In Hebrews 11, he says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, speaking of Abraham, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham was never looking for a piece of ground. He was looking for the promise of being restored into the kingdom with God. Not just, oh, give me this territory of dirt and grass. He wants to be with God, like Adam was with God in the garden. And he says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith. He died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. So here you have Abram. He's at, the, he's at the, just the edge of the land. The promises of God haven't been, but he sees them from afar. Like when Moses looked from Mount Nebo and he saw from afar the promised land. Friends, this is exactly where we are. If you're a Christian here, you're an alien. You're a sojourner. You haven't received the fullness of Christ yet. You've been delivered. You've been saved. That's been the first fruits of the promise. But, but you have much more. You, you have a city whose designer and builder is God. In other words, we don't. This is a reminder that we don't live for the present joys of this world. We are pilgrims seeking to cultivate in us an increasing longing for a world where we're drawn out of the wilderness, that we're taking out of exile, that we're brought back to God. We are those with one eye, Spurgeon said, with one eye cast to the next life. So Richard Sibbs, in his works, he writes this, these words, he says, in this waiting we may discern a main difference betwixt a Christian and a carnal man. 
who is short-spirited and all for the present, he will have his good here, whereas the saint of God continues still waiting, though all seems contrary to what he expects. We wait through the difficulty of this life, but we wait in hope. So here's what we have. For Abraham, he had the birth of a child that assured him of God's faithfulness that he could look from afar and he could die in faith. We have not just the birth of Isaac, but Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had um, Judah and Judah had son after son to David and David had son after son to Jesus. We have the son of God, the true child of promise who has come to make all things new. So now we are those who live by faith. We look at the promises from afar. The promises I'm speaking about are not heaven. Heaven is a temporary abode for those of us who, who die before the return of Christ. Christ is going to return. He's going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to reestablish his kingdom on this world. The garden in Genesis 1 and 2 will be that garden in Revelation 21 and 22. And that is our, that's, that's what we look to from afar. And so we see in Abraham even a life lived by faith while waiting for the fullness of the promises. And God will provide for us in this life while we wait for that. Just as he, we can plant a tree here because he's going to come and make it all new. So friends, we have a God who keeps his promises. You see that in 1 to 7. He protects the promises as he did in 8 to 21. And you see, he will provide for us while waiting for these promises. We are a hungry people. Hungry not for the, the latest shiny object that's offered to us in this life. We are people developing taste buds and hunger for a city whose builder and designer is God. Let's, let's just bow our heads for a moment and just ask God for grace to believe this if you need it. For those of you who perhaps are not sure where you are with Christ, ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask for conviction. Ask for longing. Let's make this, these, these moments redemptive and precious, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.